0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind. Today, something extra special. On Monday night during our journey down to Florida with Nefesh Benefesh, we celebrated Nefesh Benefesh's 15th anniversary at the Boca Raton Synagogue, where it all began. Uh, We did this in an armchair conversation with Tony Gelbart and Rabbi Josh Fast, the co-founders of the organization. Uh, This was on Monday, February 27th at Boca Raton Synagogue. And here's what it sounded like, an armchair conversation reflecting on 15 years of nefesh be nefesh for you right here at the Nahum Siegel Network.
1: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Boca Raton Synagogue for this incredible evening of celebration and, I would add, of admiration for two heroes of our community, two beloved friends who are literally changing the course of Jewish history and Jewish destiny. It's not often that you get to be in the presence of those whom you know will be recorded in history books as having played a significant and influential role among the Jewish people. And what's most remarkable about them is how humble they are, how uncomfortable they are at this very moment, hearing me talk about them in this very way. In our parsha that we'll read this week in our Torah portion, the Torah describes Vasisa Krashim La Mishkan Atseishitim Omdim. Fashion make these planks, these boards for the Mishkan, for the tabernacle, out of Atseishim, acacia wood, omdim, standing straight. And the Medrash notes that it doesn't say make krashim planks or boards, but it says ha with the definitive, the boards. As if they've been prescribed, they've been designated from earlier on. Where did they come from? The Medrash tells us something incredible. That when Yaakov, when Jacob, our forefather, was leading his children down to Egypt, when they were going into the exile, he planted these saplings, he planted these trees. Though they were heading to a dark exile, what would become a very bitter experience, Jacob planted the seeds of the redemption, of the return, of the future the saplings that would grow to provide this acacia wood, the trees that would be the material used to build, the sanctuary, the very place that would house the countenance of the Almighty. Jacob wanted the Jewish people on their way down to Egypt, though they would be in exile, to never, ever stop thinking about the return to Israel, to never give up on coming back, to never forfeit, to never concede the destiny, the place of the Jewish people, of where we belong. And so Jacob, though he did not live to see and benefit from it, he planted the seeds that would make that return so much easier, that would enable those that were returning to have a mishkan, to welcome the divine presence in their midst, and ultimately to return to the Jewish homeland to build the place of our destiny. My beloved friend Rabbi Fass and my friend Tony Gelbart, are planting seeds and saplings. They're growing trees that are producing magnificent fruit. The Jewish people are returning to our homeland because of their contribution, making it easier than ever, more inviting than ever, making it more efficient than ever. They have dedicated themselves to reminding us where we all belong. And though we may not be able to be there today, and there are legitimate reasons not to make Aliyah yet, there are no legitimate reasons not to be struggling with it. My fast for so many years had an impact on our community, had an impact on teaching me what the rabbinates all about, what it means to care for people and to love people, a role he continues to do for a much bigger congregation throughout Israel than he ever did here. And Tony continues to be a pillar of our community and a pillar of the Jewish world, who is leading the way with great humility, a businessman who's changing the course of Jewish destiny. We have the honor and privilege this evening of welcoming Nahum Siegel, literally a spokesperson and voice of the Jewish people whose life is dedicated to promoting Jewish values and Jewish interests, who has been able to inspire Jews around the world. And if you've not yet downloaded the Nachum Siegel Network app, I can't encourage you strongly enough to do so and to listen to his amazing shows and interviews and the Jewish music and to be abreast of the Jewish news and the latest simchas and what's happening around the world in the comfort of your own technological device, wherever you are, whenever you are, Nachem, it's such an honor and privilege to have you here, and it's my privilege to call Nachem Siegel to welcome our guests and begin the conversation this evening.
0: This is a very exciting evening, and I'm so glad that so many of you came out to participate and celebrate with us. It's truly an honor to speak to you and address our viewership and listeners around the world from the pulpit of the esteemed Rabbi Goldberg and that of Boca Raton Synagogue. Rabbi Goldberg spoke of the unique place that Nefesh B'Nefesh has in modern Jewish history, and I would add that the Boca Raton Synagogue, therefore, has a unique place in modern Jewish history. Yeah, sure. Well deserved the location where one of the most significant ideas and concepts was hatched, where it was born, where no doubt it could have remained as a dream, but with commitment and ingenuity was turned into a reality. And what a reality it has become. In this city, people can take pride in the roots of Nefesh Benefesh. But for you here, And for those of us from other parts of the world, we watch in amazement as communities in North America, large to small, are transformed by the organization as the organization at the same time is transforming the state of Israel and the future of the Jewish people. Often in life, as history is being transformed before our eyes, the enormity of it goes unnoticed. When you're living it, it does not nearly seem that big of a deal. Tonight, we have a chance to stop and reflect for a moment about how major a success Nefesh B'Nefesh has been and continues to be. It has positively changed the future of Israel. It has positively changed Jewish communities in North America. And it has positively changed attitudes toward Israel and Zionism within global, diverse, and sometimes fractured communities. We are about to begin our armchair discussion. Hearing from Tony Gelbart and Rabbi Josh Fass will be a treat. I think an important point must be made. Nefesh B'Nefesh has not before tonight, will not after tonight, and certainly will not tonight, use events and gatherings like these as a forum for fundraising. The organization certainly needs to constantly be supported, but an event like this is is solely to celebrate, reflect, and inform. With that in mind, let us enjoy the reflection, information, and celebration. You might want to consider a standing ovation as I welcome the two men who from an idea in Boca have helped more than 50 1000 Olim moved to Israel in 15 years, reflected in the years 2002 to 2017. And at the same time changed and enhanced Jewish history, please welcome to our stage the co-founders of Nefesh Menefesh, Tony Gelbart and Rabbi Josh Fass. Thank you very much this is very exciting please <laughs> a lot of questions I've been uh, dying to ask and I finally have the opportunity um, I'm I'm just gonna add a personal note another personal note I've had the privilege of uh, working on behalf of Nefesh Benefesh with Nefesh Benefesh and these wonderful gentlemen and their staff for a long time really from its very beginning And it's an honor to be even a small part of it so thank you both very very much uh, everyone here is curious about the very first Notion about the very first idea of this, uh, of this concept of forming an organization that would do what Nefesh B'Nefesh in fact does after all these years. We know it was hatched here. Can uh, both of you tell us what you remember about that first day and your first approach to each other with this idea for Nefesh B'Nefesh? Okay.
2: <laughs> first of
0: all, before we even
2: start the questions, thank you, Nachum for always being an incredible advocate and voice of supporting Israel, of strengthening Israel, of creating a wave of Zionism throughout this country. But really, I just want to thank everyone here. It's great, uh, really, to be home. It's, uh, I can't believe that I walked into this synagogue 21 years ago. right? And uh, those first bunch of years really uh, helped me formulate my adulthood and gave me major skill sets to, to continue life. But we're going up to your question. We have to give a little bit of context to, uh, to the history of Nefesh for a moment. Uh, Batsheva and I, my wife and I, when we dated, we always said to each other that we wanted to move to Israel. And we had an Aliyah or bust plan that within 10 years we had to move to Israel. We couldn't think of raising a family anyplace else. And then life happens. (laughs) And somehow it diverts you from your path of your plans. And I found myself in Boca Raton Synagogue with a nice house, with a great job. And I'm speaking to Hami and to Jerry and to uh, David Walgan, and we're talking about extending contracts and associate rabbi. And all of a sudden, that concept and that passion and that zeal somehow took a place on the back burner. And in 2001, March 28th, there was a suicide bomber, Hamas suicide bomber, who came to a bus stop and blew himself up. And he killed my cousin, a relative, Naftali Lanskron, and his best friend, Ellie Run Rosenberg, who was 14 years old and maimed seven other children at the bus stop. And it was a shocking wake-up call to recalibrate my compass, to re-examine my life, to question my Zionism, to place those initial plans and paths back to the front burner, And as I was sharing that concept of moving to Israel with other people, I expected others to say, you're nuts. You're leaving Boca. But I didn't. I heard, we also want to, but we also want to, we can't find jobs. We also want to, but the bureaucracy is crazy. We also want to, but we can't afford it. And one day in the Drusha right here, I looked out into the audience and I saw this man. And I said, he would know whether or not this is a good idea. Knowing Tony's experience of philanthropy and partnerships and networking and just unbelievable passion for the state of Israel. Then I went to his house. We took a walk. We both came home very late that Shabbos afternoon for lunch. So our wives were not so interested in the beginning for nefesh. And then Tony said, give me some time to think about it. I think 24 hours later he calls me up and he says, okay, I'm in 200%. I said, in what? He said, let's do it. (laughs) Let's run with it. And that's the initial story. But Tony, you'll probably add.
3: It almost went like that. (laughs) He knocked on my door on Chavez, but throughout the years that I got to know him, and not that well, I said, wow, that's a brilliant young guy, and I'd like to learn with him. have a anything, just listen to him. So I figured, you know, I, I bugged him a bunch of times. So Maybe one day we'll get together, maybe we'll learn, maybe we'll do something together. And then one day he knocked on my door. I said, oh, it's a miracle. He's coming to learn with me. This is going to be interesting. But that wasn't the game. He said, look, uh, I want to take a walk. And I said, oh, okay, let's go for a walk. We can learn when we're walking around the lake out here. So we we did the long walk, and he told me the story um, of his cousin. And I said, okay, what do you need from me? I mean, I got a few bucks. I can help you out. Uh, I got a few connections. I can help you out. But it was a bigger story than that, as he's explained to you before. The story was a passion for him to go to Israel, but to help others go with him. So the idea, the hatching of the idea um, was done by this young man, and I'm just a catalyst to... uh, to help them fulfill like the dream. I still
0: call a young man.
3: It's nice. <laughs> Younger than me.
0: <laughs> the, uh, the question is, and I know that we have a, a deference to our amazing hosts here. Uh, already I see what kind of great community this is. Uh, people are wondering if Boca was the place. Could this have happened anywhere else in the United States? Or was there something about this community where it was, it was a natural for Nefesh to be founded here?
2: I don't think Nefesh would have been founded in any other community in North America. That's the truth, for a bunch of reasons. There was a confluence of a lot of factors that created a perfect atmosphere for this idea to germinate. Number one, I've, over the last 15 years, I've zigzagged through North America and Canada, U.S., Canada, and London, and England. And BRS is extremely unique, and I think you all know that and especially in its connectivity and relationship towards expressing their Zionism towards Israel. Not just in missions, not by lobbying and advocacy, the way they celebrate their aliyah of their congregants. It's a rarity, sadly. You don't find this combination of unabashed, unapologetic Zionism, sadly, in this country. And BRS is very unique. And it's continued through every single rabbi, and every single rabbi brings their unique flavor and strength and connection. I mean, Rabbi Goldberg, this wouldn't have not happened without Ephraim's support and encouragement. And uh, where is Rabbi Goldberg? But just a huge, huge shout-out to Rabbi Goldberg for creating this evening. Besides that, I was also very lucky to be mentored by Rabbi Brander for six years. Besides the overt Zionism, you have an individual who's a dreamer, who's very creative, but also very pragmatic. And those, those tools uh, definitely help me with a little bit of those formative tools to, to, to run an organization, or to at least fake running an organization. And third... There is only one Tony Gilbart in this world, and uh, to be able to uh, to be able to be zochah to have him at the right time with all these confluence of factors, I um, you can close your ears. I talk to him at least once every single day for 15 years. It's a lot of time, <laughs> and uh, I'm still wowed by this person and our relationship has developed so beautifully over these years and it's just uh, a blessing that I have a blessing that I had I think in retrospect I value it so much more now of what has happened over the last 15 years so yes it's a long answer to your question Nefesh for Nefesh would have not I can tell you this definitively Nefesh Nefesh would have not been created in any other community.
3: Tony, thoughts about Boca? You you can think about Boca this way, and Israel also. If an organization was started in Boca to help people move to Israel, I mean, Boca's like really nice. You know, the weather and the shopping and the shul and the community, what was lacking here? Not too much. So if they hear that people from Boca Raton and Boca Raton synagogue are getting up and moving to Israel, must be something special. So, you know, there's all about marketing and it's about, you know, Aliyah used to be a dirty word. You know, it used to be a really, you know, what are you doing making Aliyah? Are you crazy? This is nuts. So you have to go from that to, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. You're successful? Tell me about it. So that's... I think the idea of starting it here in BoCA instead of Brooklyn, nothing against Brooklyn, but it, it sends a message:
0: You know I'm curious about early on, uh, we know that you mentioned bureaucracy earlier, and we know that sometimes in the Israeli government and in the system, there can be some bureaucracy, at least I'm told so. And, and th- there had to have been a tipping point where you went ahead, you and your staff, and got past a very significant hurdle. I don't think the first year or few months could have been you know nearly as productive. Uh, as things are now, and you're trying to push things forward. So at what point did you both say to yourself, you know what, we've made tremendous progress with the Israeli government or with the system that we're trying to create, and now it's time to run with it?
2: We have an unbelievable staff. And uh, there's a Hebrew word, ekpatiyut. that means... Uh, I can't really say it, but uh, you're very passionate. <laughs> you know, people come to work every day and try to make things better, ease the process, find another creative way to inspire people, a constant evaluation of how things can be done and when we made Aliyah, how much better it should, be, should have been for us. So every single day, literally every single day, people sit in rooms of how do we tackle another beer rack. Bureaucratic hurdle. Even today. Oh, of course. And there's postmortems after every single, every event or any tool of how can we make it better and how we could finesse it. I think there was a tipping point for me and Tony. You can share other. We've we've tackled things and been very creative and we thought out of the box. And it's not that government clerks don't want to help. And and we we. And our staff really believes that. The clerks in government agencies, they've been worn down, they get very little pay, and, and there's a lot of cynicism and a lot of slow processing. But deep down inside each of them, there's a, an incredible spark of what, of what Israel stands for and what our people coming home means. So we've moved them and worked with them, and we've done processing on the flight and we've got deputized by border patrol police to scan passports on the plane avi levine who started this whole nefesh nefesh with us avi levine's parents and in-laws are here a shout out to them he's deputized by the border police to scan people's passports that is criminal it's, it's nuts and we, we last week we had Yom Sederim and Aaron's Day for soldiers, like 1,700 people. I we were on the radio there, and we had the entire driver's license process there. People came, and they optometrists were there. They they checked people, the soldiers' eyes, and they went to the the post office was on site. Drivers were there, volunteered to take the soldiers around the block and just stamp everyone's license. I don't think they even drove for those few minutes, but they just. We're giving out licenses. But the tipping point, the change, is the mentality shift of Israelis that there is a wave of Olim coming. And I'll explain to you. In the past, for the last 50 blank years, Israelis said, when you get here, we'll believe you. So when, is, when people came on pilot trips or interviewed for jobs, they're like, okay, <laughs> come, then we'll talk. And, and that was corrosive to a wave of Aliyah because it's a huge leap of faith for individuals to make if there's no receptivity even in the interest. And that shifted because the Olim are coming and we're representing them and there is a momentum and there's also history. And I'll just give an example. For me, one of the, the proudest bureaucratic hurdles was that the Ministry of Health comes to America and does the licensing test in America for doctors so that doctors know that they have a license approved, they can get interviews during their pilot trips and hit the ground running. And that is that boggles the mind. That's a complete shift of mindset. Not only is there a belief that they're coming, but they're investing in the preparatory stages pre alia And I think for me, that mental shift of not only getting the Ratzon, the desire to do it, but also just acknowledging that people are coming when they say that they want to come, that's huge.
0: Tony, before you answer, though, I just want to reiterate, I mean, we know that uh, there was an agency, and I assume they still are, who had their hand in the Aliyah process, and the absorption ministry, I'm sure, was quite significant and has been over the last many years. In addition to that, at some point, the Prime Minister of Israel and his office started to recognize your organization. I doubt it was like that from day one. So, were any of those important in terms of different parts or points that led to the success of the
3: organization? Um, I'll give you a little bit of an example. Uh, in the early '70s, I um, I was in Israel, and uh, I wanted to make Aliyah, and I went to a few offices. And I couldn't even understand how an American guy could go to Israel to make aliyah. I mean, it was not even possible. It was so difficult. And I said to myself, wow, that's an interesting experience. So I just hung around without making aliyah. Did a lot of stuff. But if you go fast forward, in 2001, when we actually talked about this organization, I remember also sitting... I think it was in the beginning of 2002 when the Intifada started. I was in the King David Hotel. I think all floors except one floor of the King David Hotel was closed. All of them were closed. There were two people in that hotel. I think it was General Zini from uh, the U.S. government trying to figure out what to do. And me. And another guy who worked for me. We were in this room and... We were just talking and having coffee, and we were just going through the motions. And I sat with a dear friend of mine who was a high-ranking general, and I told him about this crazy idea that Rabbi Fast and I had. And he said, listen, that's pretty crazy because you have the Jewish agency, and you have all these nice bureaucratic government agencies, and nobody wants to make aliyah, especially from America. It doesn't work. Um, But he said, if you do, it'll be the greatest thing you've ever done. And and, and it's a very well-known guy, um, good friends with all the the big machers of Israel. Um, But going further, 2002, 2003, we ran into the bureaucratic difficulties of, you know, having organizations that were there doing a job already, like the Jewish ANZ you mentioned, like the Ministry of Immigration Absorption. And we never would trash them or say anything negative about them. We're looking at it, from my perspective, as a business, a business with a heart. How can you make it better? How can you make it more efficient? How can you do a job and make sure that people are happy with the service and, you know, what you're delivering? And that was the whole thing. So, yes, we, you know, butted heads with a lot of people, and we used what we called back then in the 70s and now in the 2000s it was something, it's a terrible world, but it's a word, it's called protexia. You needed to have the protection in order, it sounds like a mafia term, but you needed the protection in order to get something done. If you didn't have that protection, you'd get nothing done. And I have to say that even today, if you don't have the right connections, it's a better word than protexia, um, it's still difficult to get things done. So fast forward, we had those issues, we overcame those issues it wasn't we were trying to take over anybody's job or diminish what they did in the past we were just showing them look here's a better way of doing it and and we're going to show you how to do it
0: okay very short so i don't want to harp on it but i just <laughs> i i'm so desperate for an answer to this was there a time where you walked out of the prime minister's office and said to each other okay we finally made it like was that significant to you that that the the head of the country basically said, you know what, you, you guys are doing a great job, fast forward, or, or keep going, keep going and do what you're doing.
2: There was a turning point, and that was when we were at the GA, right? Yeah. This well, a good answer. Before that. Oh, before that, you can go that. Uh, for me, it was at the GA, and Sharon um, was prime minister at that time, and he videotaped a message of support to Nefesh and this new Aliyah concept. And in the federation world where Aliyah was still taboo, for that to be his message, for us it transformed our place in the North American jury arena. You
3: you had to understand who, you know, people will think about politically and in the press how an individual is as a prime minister. So you think about, you'll read something in a newspaper and you believe, well, that's the way the guy is. I, I can tell you that we were in the prime minister's office, in Sharon's office, and, and Rabbi Fast gave me a list of, I think it was 8,000 names, and I gently slammed it on his table. And I said, before I said that, though, I asked him, how is the army? You know, how's the army? And he said to me, like, what's he talking about? Is he, you know, they got them. I mean, has he gone nuts, Tony? I mean, how's the army? I said, how's the army? He says, it's very good. I said, how's the Air Force? I said, how's the Air Force? And he really thought I was going crazy, and his, his uh, assistant chief of staff was sitting next to me, and it was a difficult question, and I insisted that he would ask me, answer me, how is the Air Force? And he said, okay, you know, it's great. You know, in Hebrew, it says, this is very good. I said, okay, then I put the list down, and I said, listen, there's 8,000 names, and all these people want to make aliyah. We need your support, and we need your money. We need your help. And from that day, we all both got involved in, in making sure that his staff knew what we were doing and that we were very adamant about this happening. And then subsequently he- no, you have to tie it back to what uh, the Army reference. Right. So, well, it's, it's a public forum, but so I-, I uh, I said, well, if the Army's doing so good, you need one less Merkava tank, and if the Air Force doing so good, you need one less F-16 plane. So take those, fund us, and we'll be set for 20 years. Nice job, Tony. Very
0: nice. Uh, We're going to talk in a couple of minutes about the whole role in Jewish history, as I alluded to earlier, but just another practical question, which we've discussed before, but I think it's important for this night, 15 years later. I I would suspect, and I've mentioned this to both of you in the past, I would suspect that at some point, whether it was that weekend back in 01 or whether it was a year later or a short time after that, uh, I would think that both of you at some point felt we may run out of a pool of people to move to Israel. You know, how many are there in North America that really want to do this? Was there ever a fear, and I'll ask both of you this question, was there ever a fear that this is really for a lot of communities a one-shot deal and that years down the line it would just peter out? No. No. Simple as that, huh? Yeah. No. Uh,
2: there's a conveyor belt of Zionist experiences that produce a certain number every single year. And that's going to be a static. That's going to be a static number. The question is how you exponentially grow it. You know, at what point do you get to a tipping point that it creates its own momentum at a higher level? It, I, I, the frustration is that we're still churning that momentum, and we haven't hit to that tipping point where there's an exponential leap. 50,000 Olim is, is incredible, but
0: we want to see it to the next level. I understand. You're not satisfied yet at 50,000. Never. And uh, do you ever think what the numbers can, in fact, become or what the next stage of this entire operation is? Will Nefesh nefesh be very different? I don't know, much larger or operate in a much different way a couple of years from now because there'll be so much more... Momentum toward Aliyah.
2: Well, we created it. I'm sorry, Tony. We created it that it's scalable. That uh, if tomorrow ten thousand Olim would come, we would just add per department more staff, and it's 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 a, it's a doable mechanism.
0: So, if North American Jews are hesitating to move because they don't want to put a burden on your staff, that's not an acceptable excuse. Thank you
3: so much
2: for the sensitivity.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you you wouldn't accept that, Tony. <laughs> we, we we built the highway. We built the infrastructure to carry as many people, cars, as necessary. So if it's 10,000, 20, or 30, we're prepared from every system that you can imagine.
0: Uh, we talk about the role in Jewish history. I spoke about it for a moment before, and uh, many people, of course, credit the two of you with changing the face of Jewish history. I want to start for a moment before we talk about the transformation of what you've done in the state of Israel to speak about the communities here. I'm under the impression... That communities throughout North America are very different in their approach to Zionism and the way they raise their children in their own uh, synagogues and congregations because of nefesh benefesh. Is that something you could speak about for a moment? Go for it, Tony. No, no.
2: <laughs> We've made a concerted effort that not only are we going to facilitate Aliyah for individuals who want to or help. Navigate individuals who are sitting on the fence, but also work on the atmospherics within the community that they are getting the support And the positive reinforcements that they need to make this decision We've also made a concerted effort to not focus on one denomination Israel is for everyone and everyone who has a dream to move to Israel should feel that there is an address for them and 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 especially in the first years, where as an Orthodox rabbi, the other denominations were very wary of, would I be sensitive, would the organization be sensitive to other non-Orthodox Jews? And that was a point of contention in 2005 when Sharon made his uh, cabinet decision in 2008 when the Jewish agency outsourced North American Aliyah to us. And we made a, a real concerted effort to embrace every Jew, and that's affected a lot of activity and programming within different communities. And it's been an incredible experience over the last bunch of years to see it's not me knocking on the door anymore. It's not us knocking on the door asking for them to do programs. They're coming to us, the denominations, and saying, we have these three or four or five ideas. Could you invest in them? Could we partner in them? Could we do matching? And it's incredible. And, and that has trickled down to the communities as well, and it's changed what Aliyah, how it's in the vernacular and how it's being discussed and how it's being celebrated. There's obviously much more to do, but it's been an incredible ride in that respect.
3: Like I said before, Aliyah used to be a, a dirty word, so the perception was different. So our, one of our goals was to not, help, not only just help people who wanted to make Aliyah today, but give the opportunity for people in the different communities, the future possibility. Now, maybe your father or mother couldn't make Aliyah, but you want to make Aliyah. So we just wanted to have it out there that if you want to make Aliyah, we're going to make it simple for you to do it. We're going to tell you what the, you know, ramifications, the issues, the family things, the the personal things, the business things. We're going to show you what it's like to make Aliyah, but we're going to plant those seeds. So yeah, you know, uh, You know, my my grandfather uh, tried to make aliyah several times, but he was arrested, you know, and he couldn't get there because there was a quota. Um, And, you know, who knows when the next one in my family will make aliyah. But the point is that you just want to leave it out there. You want to help person who wants to make it. You don't have to force it. But the the, the key point here is that success breeds success. So if you show there's a success, I can do that, too.
0: How would you describe the transformation on the other side of the world? People ask you how Nefesh B'Nefesh has had an effect on the present today and will continue to have an effect on the future of the state of Israel. How would you put it into words in terms of the role that you've had in transforming the state of Israel? I mean on a practical look, level look, as well. On the, whether, on
3: the practical level, there's very cool things happening on the practical level. I mean, for me, um, I can see there's a different mindset, a different culture set when you're coming from America to Israel. I mean, there are Jewish brethren, but it's still the Middle East, okay? Sometimes there's a shook mentality, okay? so But if you bring the, the culture and the mindset um, from America to Israel, you can change things and I give you just a, a small example you know if we call out you know uh, and this is a plug here but if we call out for a, a pizza delivery right we say, look we want you know mushrooms and double cheese and please deliver it to me by eight o'clock and you'll get your pizza if you ask a guy in Israel this was years ago it's changing though I'd like a mushroom pizza with double cheese and delivered by eight o'clock. He'll say, "What are you talking about?" You know, we in America don't mind standing in line for an hour or two or three for a 10-second ride in a Disneyland ride, but in America and Israel, go try to get on a bus even till today at the Tachanat Merkazit. You'll find that everybody's rushing to get to the same door. So there's a mindset and culture. It goes down to the basics, to the top, to politically as well. And you'll see that people who made Aliyah with Nefesh and Menefesh became Knesset members in Israel already. Dov Lipman, Rabbi Dov, you know, he was a Knesset member. So that's a pretty big thing. And they're generals and, you know, army people. They're, they're in all walks of life, medical, army, teachers. They're really integrating in Israel, and they're showing, look, where'd you come from? I came from America. He's in the Golan, and there's, you know, more Israelis than 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 anything in the Golan as far as Americans are concerned. So when an American moves to Israel, and he goes to the Golan, it's like, what are you doing here? So it does make a difference. It changes the country. And, you know, when you get to 50,000 people, you know, remember that Malay Dumim is a city of 35,000. So imagine when 50,000, and the rabbi reminded me with the children, it's like sixty. Five thousand. So it makes a difference. Rabbi? I would just add
2: philosophically, even though I like the the pizza, the extra cheese mushroom, Um, it reorients the Israeli public just to recognize the gift that they have. Sometimes you become desensitized to miracles. (laughs) And when they're hollishing to go to the Golden Medina and they see planes of people coming out from New York wanting to plant their lives there, it makes them pause. And as long as the press covers that pause, Dainu. dayenu, because it just makes individuals pause for a second and reflect on. The miraculous
0: times that we live in. And it might be the effect of that pause that makes the press want to cover it and yeah, brings it which, to the attention.
2: Which, which I marvel every single time that even yes, yesterday we came from a huge mega event in New York City and there was a whole delegation of press from Israel and they're still, this is 15
0: years later, they're still covering it, it's just they're still
2: also trying to wrap their minds around it. And they
0: continue to take notice. How many of you have seen the uh, live video when the plane lands in Israel and oh there the hands are going up the lands in Israel, it's an incredible celebration. I've had the privilege of, of being there as an eyewitness and, and seeing it firsthand. Uh, I, I'm, I know Rabbi Fass often says that every one of them, and Tony, you've said this as well, every one of them is fresh and new, every one of them is a brand new experience, and it feels like the first time, so to speak. But there has to be something, number one, that you could describe that's unique in, in terms of celebration itself. But in addition to that, there's got to be one of them that stood out for a specific reason to each of you. Is there anything you recall that was extra significant about one of them or something that, aside from the first, I don't know. <laughs>
2: no, it's not, that was, every flight is just amazing. We've been on, I think, almost all flights together. Every flight has its own dynamic, has its own nature. I mean, you have to understand, let's, let's back up for a second. You, you're at JFK and you have hundreds of family members saying goodbye to either children, parents, siblings. And that is heart-wrenching. And when you have soldiers or lone soldiers getting on a plane and seeing parents give a bracha to them and hugging and kissing and embracing, we find our corner, we wipe our tears. Then you go on a plane, and it's full of olim, every seat. And Tony and I walk through at different times, because, and we walk through the plane, and each of us have takeaways from that walk through of the plane and schmoozing with the olim. For me, it's just the diversity of the Jewish people on the plane, just the mix of, sadly, we don't have that many unifying moments of of our Jews coming together. And if we can celebrate that moment, and and if Israel is the conduit for it, fantastic. So that's beautiful. Then you get off the plane, people are just waving to their families who are watching on the video cameras, kissing the ground. Some of them are even proposing to each other on the Bono plane, which is weird. Um, then you get into the bus for a two-minute ride to the ceremony, to the hangar. And for me, I think I told you this once, the best part is when you're in, packed in that bus and there are a thousand people waving at the hangar. And you hear the noise, and it's getting louder and louder as the bus gets closer to, this, to the ceremony, to the hangar. And those doors open on that bus, and there's this wave that comes into that bus. You feel it.
0: Euphoria. It's
2: palpable. Just the music coming in, the excitement, and, you, you just, and they're singing. It's just it's an unbelievable experience. So on a macro, every flight is just awesome. And then you have every single flight has that moment that just takes your breath away. There's always an anecdote. Um, you few, a- I'll, give you, I'll give you a few, and then, Tony, you can go, go on for, like, hours. Um, <laughs> we once, uh, once had a plane that we had a Holocaust survivor. She was 90 years old. And, uh, and it happened to be that she was sitting next to a nine-year-old girl. In business class, lucky nine-year-old, her father broke a leg and we had to put the family in business class and this little girl was sitting next to this 90-year-old woman. And they're sitting on the plane next to each other and they became friends, like on the plane. They're talking about their butterflies and their nervousness and they're opening each other's foods. And, and then when we land and they come out of the plane, they're holding each other's hands. And I, I, I broke down can imagine the horrors that this woman experienced to get to this point. Holding the hand of a kid who has no understanding of that history. Both sharing that first moment of becoming Toshve Yisrael. That's incredible. We've had kids, we had one kid, remember a 13-year-old kid who came off a plane wearing his grandfather's Army coat, right? I don't know, uniform that his grandfather fought for the establishment of the state of Israel, and he never was able to stay. So the kid wanted to bring his grandfather to his aliyah, and the kid's wearing this huge thing coming down to his, like, his knees. But it was just, oh, it was incredible. We've had Sheva on planes.
0: I'm stealing all your stuff.
2: We had Sheverbruchos <laughs> on a plane. You had
0: two 90- or a couple who were you asked the You for one.
2: Or... We had two couples, Sheverbruchos. We, we haven't had a bris yet because of turbulence. But um, we've had two Sheverbruchos. It was like they made Aliyah like three days after they get married. People are pulling guitars and violins and like... And we just... it was. What ugh. about all the Shadukim? Oh, yeah. We haven't had a the lot shidduchim. of Shadukim. Well, a little hint. I try to place all the singles next to each other... Because we do the seating, and it's like after a few years ago, the singles got wind of it. They on, huh? So, uh, like in the middle of the flight, they're like, "What were you thinking?" <laughs> but we've had we've had a bunch of we've had a bunch of love connections. Your turn.
3: <laughs> Look, every flight, Rabbi Fass talked about spoke about every flight has an emotional uh, roller coaster before you leave, during the flight, and when you land. But In every flight, there's always something unexpected happens. You don't expect it. I mean, you know, emotions are going to be there. We've seen everything from, you know, people crying about their animals being left underneath the, the plane till, I mean, all kind of nice things. But in every instant, there is something that sticks out in your mind. A couple of them which I thought were, were really unique. Um, and this is where you gotta go to understand that the prime ministers and the finance ministers and all the ministers in the beginning, yeah, look, you know, there's a very good saying that failure is an orphan and success has many fathers. Thank God today we have many fathers. And I will tell you that, you know, in in the realm of politics, it's really important. You know, for the people who are coming out to be your father, and and to have those people there. But I remember on one plane, um, there were two gentlemen. One was uh, uh, Arik Sharon, the prime minister at the time, and one was Benjamin Netanyahu, the finance minister of the time. And I was sitting between them, and, you know, they didn't always have the Best relationship you know they, they, they liked each other on a human basis on a personal basis but sometimes politics got in the way um, so you know they weren't really smiling a lot at each other but off the plane came uh, a young couple and they had two sons and one was named after Ariel Sharon his name was Arik and the other one was named after Benjamin Netanyahu his name was Ben Benjamin and I try to explain it to both of them, let's go. And they, and they stood up, and at that moment, they looked at each other with the two kids, and they were actually really laughing and smiling. So if you think about it, these are two really pivotal, important people uh, in the history of the Jewish people and the history of Israel and the future of Israel and just because of a nefesh, benefesh, a couple of kids making aliyah, they uh, started talking a little bit nicer that day. And, in fact, I didn't get to sit between them anymore. I got to sit to, they switched, and they sat next to each other. So that's a kind of an, a nice story that people don't realize what's the ancillary things that happen on the flight. One other one, which really, really uh, brought me to um, – I stood back, and I was like – had an outer body experience. We landed – and there, um, uh, people were just getting their luggage and there was a siren and there was a uh, a missile heading for the airport. Um, so, people had to, you know, go and you have like 30 seconds or how many seconds. And there was really, it was the old terminal, so there were really no bomb shelters. So, we all huddled in the back where the luggage comes out before the conveyor belts. So, we're all sitting there huddling together and you know, everybody's looking at each other. And, you know, it could be just a hazaka, which is just a, a warning that, you know, uh, a missile might be coming your way. But lo and behold, we heard boom, boom. And that's the day they closed the Gurion Airport for the first time in many, many years, I guess. Um, that was pivotal because I was thinking, I was looking at all these people, I said, look at all these people. There. They knew they were getting into. They didn't come during the... Beautiful time, you know, they came during this rough, difficult period and they weren't running away. They were running to Israel. So to me, watching them with their little children and their elderly parents sitting there coming to a place that wasn't an easy decision. It wasn't living in Boca Raton.
0: (laughs) Tony, when you have that experience and you land in Israel with the flights that we just described, and and family and business takes you right back to the US is it hard to get back on that plane right away because you've just had this incredible euphoric experience?
3: Yeah, it's always hard to get back on the plane. I mean, that's a that's a a question that people ask me quite a bit, you know. Where do you live? I always say I live on, you know, seat seat 6A, you know. Uh, that that's where I live, but yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult because You know, you want to be here and you want to be there. You know, you have a mother and a father. Who do you love more and where should you be with and how you should do it? You know, thank God they're not divorced, but you don't know where to be. So, but I always say, look, in one case, I mean, if you just look at Israel, Israel has ambassadors throughout the world. They have ambassadors and they have several ambassadors and many council generals here in in Israel, in America. They're living here. And, and doing their work here because it's the only place they can do it. They can't do the same job um, in Israel. I feel the same thing with me on a personal level. I could never do the same thing that I do here for the organization being in Israel full time. So I go as much as I can back and forth, and, you know, I'm, I'm here.
0: <laughs> Rabbi Fass, has Tony been a good ambassador so far? Filling the job pretty well. <laughs> I think he's amazing.
2: Um, I also don't, no, I want to add
0: something. I think sure.
2: Tony is a model for individuals to understand that Zionism is not a zero sum game. A lot of people think that the only way to purely express Zionism is to make Aliyah. And unfortunately, we're losing. We're losing a younger generation. If, if they don't feel that Zionism is, if Aliyah is not an option, then there's no real palpable connection to the State of Israel because they feel it's a rejection. But no, there's so many different forms and so many different means and ways of connecting to Israel and still being a Zionist. I don't think I have met very few Zionists on the level of Tony Gelbart and he has not made Aliyah. And I think that is a model for individuals that I think we have to somehow uh, leverage and educate.
0: Excellent. we talk about the... Uh, it doesn't get you off the hook, though. Yeah, I was wondering because if you were to start citing me. Thanks a lot. Um, the, um, we talk about this incredible spirit of Zionism uh, that now is in so many communities in the United States. And I think it's obvious that uh, so many more young people from the U.S. are becoming soldiers in the Israel Defense Forces. I know that in, in my children's case, uh, if I have the statistics correctly... Um, one of my sons has 10 classmates who are now entering, high school classmates who are now entering the IDF or will do so shortly. Is this all, it may sound like an obvious question, is this all only because of the Avira, because of the atmosphere that's being created, or is there more to it that's, that's encouraging these young people, men and women, young men and w- young women to join the Army?
2: I think there, there's been a uh, momentum created and success be success means not only success of Aliyah, but success of an experience, of a positive experience. So if a kid goes and has a positive growth experience, then other people will follow in his footsteps. But we see also individuals who were, who had a birthright experience which lit a spark within them that they now want to have expressed identity or Jewish connectivity. We've seen individuals who who fought BDS on campus and they became for Brent Zionists, and now they're looking to express themselves, so they look to join the, the Israel army. So we see different reasons, but we're definitely seeing an increase of, of young adults making Aliyah. And it's affected the way that we do programming, both pre- and post-Aliyah, because many of them are, are not religious. So the, our, our communications with them pre- and our programming post has to be very different than a Friday night tish.
0: It was not nearly as strong, I guess, when you started. Right, first couple of years, there was that department didn't exist. Right. Is Oni, anything you want to add on that?
3: Look, there's there's several thousand and thousand of of kids moving to Israel, um, making Aliyah and joining the army, <clears throat> and we did a pretty good job in helping the kids from America, North America, when they got to Israel decided to make Aliyah, decided to join the army. We did pretty good as an his organization helping them out. And the government tasked us not too long ago that we should help others from other countries who are making Aliyah um, and going into the army and give them the same kind of service. So um, unbeknownst to a lot of people, we basically take care of something like five... Well, yeah, well, it depends. Let's say 3,500 new uh, lone soldiers uh, every year from all over the world, and we have a, you know an office in Tel Aviv, which is you know staffed by people from those respective countries. So ex-lone soldiers from France, from Spain, from America, from Ethiopia, from Russia, on and on and on and on. So, so. it's
0: somewhat unfair to categorize the organization as just North American Aliyah to an extent. Right. So you get to Tel Aviv, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
3: but uh, we had, we had uh, um, a day of, you know, getting your stuff together. It's called right. Yom Siddharim, And I think they were from 70 different countries?
2: 64, and,
0: and right? I sent you that. Rabbi Fast sent me the list, and I'm still mesmerized by it as I was reviewing it. 64 countries in the world are represented by Israel's lone soldiers right now. And if you, you – know, there are countries on there I never heard of, frankly. It's really amazing and incredible. Uh, and in some cases, yes, they do deserve a round of applause. And in some cases, it's more than one. Yeah. You'd think there'd be one maybe from Ecuador? No, there could be four or five from Ecuador. He brought his brothers. <laughs> Which is amazing. Uh, not to get too controversial, but this is the time to reflect 15 years later. And there are many people curious, both here and watching around the world. Uh, the two of you seem to be very in sync. You seem to have this vision from day one here in Boca that's become this flowering project that continues to just uh, mesmerize the Jewish world and do so many wonderful things. Has there been a time when it came to goals or vision or, I don't know, the machinations of the organization where the two of you did not agree, where there's been, you know, a little bit of friction about what direction you should be going in?
3: No. Never. Nope.
0: Where's the story here, guys? There's, a, <laughs> I, I don't
3: know. there's no story. Nothing. Nothing, No. That's how come it's this was better works. than our marriages. Yeah. <laughs> and if I would ask yeah, I both of you,
0: if I would ask both of you, uh, because both of you on separate, uh, I should say the following, both of you on more than one occasion uh, in our forum um, have alluded to the fact that what we've seen till now in the first 15 years is just the beginning, that the plans you have, that the walks you're ready to take with each other to hatch up new, I- to, to create new ideas and bring them eventually to fruition is... You know, there are many of them. Um, are, are you in sync on those? Are you, are you, as I ask you, you know, what your plans are for the future, you both would give the same answer?
2: Yes, but I don't think we're
0: sharing them. None of them? Because it's 15 years, and I would think that now. Am I right, everybody? Now we're curious what the next steps to the organization are and what major projects you might take
3: on? I'll tell you one thing. It's not about the projects and what we're going to take on, but I can tell you something. When you have an organization that you start from zero and you build it and you build it and the way that Rabbi Fass is, is running it um, in Israel and you build it, that it's not just known in the U.S. and known you know, in the Jewish community, but known in the U.S., known in Israel, but it's known around the world. And we get calls all the time for people, major, you know, Jewish um, organizations, people, leaders in their countries saying, will you open up Nefesh, Nefesh here? Will you open up here? We need you to come here and open up. So that's a dream that hopefully will fulfill shortly.
2: I'm going to distract this question. <laughs> just, Just a fascinating fact. Not only are other Jewish communities and countries knocking on our door to use the model, but other countries are using our model. We've had... Two visits from government officials from South Korea. Last week, we just had the Moldovian government to our office last week. That was fascinating. How to increase immigration to their country They have immigration spurts to their country, and they were looking for models of successful immigration, both in employment and community and education. They did. They Googled, and I guess they got nefesh, and they had government representations. A lot of translations. It takes forever to have a conversation, but that's a fascinating Um, vignette.
0: Did you tell them that a biblical promise about the Holy Land is very helpful? We skipped that point. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. So there's definitely going to be a bright future, and it might include, as you're alluding to, other areas of the world that that you'll be able to reach out to and encourage people to uh, make Aliyah.
2: But it's not just ideas of how to laterally take Aliyah to other countries. It's not just horizontal articulated growth. I think we have other ideas of how to support Israel and strengthen Israel in other arenas that we feel are necessary. Is that vague enough?
0: Uh, (laughs) Slightly vague, although I'm pretty happy with that answer, frankly.
3: You have to think outside the box when you're dealing with the Jewish world. We have a lot of opinions in the Jewish world. Shocking. Okay? And you just have to think outside the box that you have to understand that if you take the list and you look at it, you say, what do we all agree upon and what we disagree upon, I venture to guess that the things that we Jews collectively agree upon is much greater than the things that we disagree upon. So let's focus on the positive and see what we agree, and then we'll make it a better place for all of us.
0: All right. I got to get to the historic element, and that's one of the main themes for tonight. But just, we, we, you, you speak about and you reiterate how the two of you are basically, you know, thinking alike on, in, during this whole project. And staying very positive, certainly looking at the positive you just said, accentuate and emphasize the positive of the entire experience with the Jewish people. So then I ask each of you, have there been any major disappointments? Have there been any, you know, days where you said, oh, no, this is, this is just not going well, and, you know. Tell us about those.
2: How much time do we have? <laughs>
3: yeah, say, that's, we can agree that there's a lot Thank of you for this free therapy session.
0: Um... I don't just mean bureaucracy.
2: No, and trying no, to cut God, red tape. forget about
0: bureaucracy. I'm talking about where the vision suffered. You said, "Oh my gosh, what we had in mind is not." It doesn't no, look like it. Uh, no, No, well, that not, that
2: not. Well, it's, The vision was there. The, the vision was there. The scaffolding was there. Even if you look at our initial business model, um, to the penny, it's it's there. We often take it out. 15 years ago, we created a business model of what we thought thought it would cost to facilitate the alia and acclimate them. And per scale of by the thousand and it 's uncanny it 's like we 're off by a dime and it's just it 's just i think it 's purely by chance but uh, but it, that's that 's been incredible we've we 've been disappointed we 've disappointed um, by certain promises of entities and individuals that didn 't come through and, and left us in, in in dire straits and very stressful moments um, we 've been frustrated by Individuals putting ego first before mission. This is excruciatingly, excruciatingly uncomfortable for me and Tony um, to do this. We, we we don't. We we hide behind the mic with you for a few minutes, but uh, so but uh, so we don't really share this a lot. But uh, there've been moments that's that we we look at each other and we say, we, we don't get it. We don't get why there's not a greater wave of limb? It's, it's never been easier to make aliyah in the entire history of the Jewish people. I just don't get it. I just don't get it. And uh, so that has been, for me, something that I've been struggling with. And, uh, and then sometimes you, you get other individuals who share who share vision but don't, but don't actualize it in the way that you would hope. So you can take over before I get depressed.
3: No, that's the, that's the truth. But the truth is also in the first year, we didn't think we'd get any help or encouragement by anybody. In the second year, we kind of didn't think we'd get any help or encouragement by anyone. And the third year, we said, you know what? We should be getting a little help and encouragement by somebody somewhere. But by the fourth year, we thought we were crazy. But when we got to the 26th and 27th plane, then we said, okay, we're going to create our – we're not listening to anybody else. We're going to create our own, you know, path. Because you know, if you create your own path, you're just leading the way others will follow. We were didn't have any footsteps to follow into. We had to create those footsteps for others to follow. And that's basically what we did with the mission, the vision. The whole idea of making this Aliyah business an easy business, if you want to make Aliyah, we'll help you. We don't care if you're, you know, what denomination, religious, not religious, Sephardic, Ashkenazic, you're right wing, left wing. We didn't care anything about that. And I think the biggest issue that I struggled with was everyone always trying to label the organization or us as something. Oh, it's only for religious Jews. Oh. It's only for right-wing Jews. But then, you know, they found out that it's not the case. But those stereotypes exist within our own community. I'll never forget someone coming off a plane, um, and he's got his big black hat and his big black beard, and his children were in tow, and his wife was wearing a shetel, and it was a little bit off-center because she had six kids with her, and she had a rough time on the plane. And one of the guys in Israel says to me, you know, well, we don't need Jews like that over here. I said, excuse me, but I won't say his name, and I don't say But uh, he just became the chief of hematology oncology at one of the biggest hospitals here. You want to repeat that again for me? So when you get to those kind of things and that level, it gets a little disappointing. So if you want to know what's disappointing, that's disappointing for me. But now people understand, you can come to our ceremony and you will see the entire spectrum of the Jewish people, the entire spectrum. And that's why we have every minister, prime minister, Knesset member, everybody wants to speak at a ceremony today. Why? It's not because they're going to get another vote here or there is because they really really enjoy looking at the crowd and saying oh my god this is really fun and we're the good news on the on the radio we're the good news at the television we're the good news on the newspaper you know because every day you open newspaper there's bad news we're the good news so that's why this is starting to be what i call a snowball effect
0: Uh, we know that there's um uh, there are groups of people uh, no surprise to anybody jewish leadership is you know um, is the way it is, and therefore, you know, even in members of the rabbinate, some are very positive when it comes to aliyah, others might be a little bit more ambivalent. It comes to Jewish leadership and organizations, again, you know, some are wishy washy, others are very enthusiastic. Is there one category of people, especially in Jewish North America, that was incredibly enthusiastic or helpful to you that you may not have expected, or you said to yourself, wow, this group of, whether it's leaders or associated with certain organizations, were really out there for us? Or no way. No. <laughs> All right, let's get to the history then <laughs> and the context of Nefesh B'Nefesh in Jewish history. Uh, people have con- compared you to Ezra and Nehemiah in, uh, in terms of the numbers of Jews that you bring from the Diaspora now to, Why just Ezra and to, <laughs> to Israel. There are other Jewish leaders in history you've been compared to as well. You've bridged the gap between Israel and the Diaspora in a unique fashion, to say the least. And as we mentioned earlier, the transformation of the state of Israel in so many practical ways, and obviously even in the more abstract ways as you described, is palpable and quite significant. How do the two of you, as immodestly as you can, as we start to wrap up this conversation, how do the two of you view your role and the organization's role in this Jewish historical experience?
2: Can we hit some fun questions? (laughs) If we have more time, I think we sh- let's, I would like to reminisce a bit on some of the behind-the-scenes as well uh, the be last great. 15 years, if, we, if people want to stay. Um, I, I think uh, an exaggerated, even though flattering comparison, I think it starts and ends with just the number of olim during Ezra Nehemiah's time. Uh, I, we, are, we view it as a schut, as a, as a real humble schut that we are somewhat ingredients and a catalyst for some of this move to bring tens of thousands of Jews back home. I think I often think about what Ezra Nechemia might have been thinking during that time. I think that's the only comparison. Just think about it for a second. Beit HaMikdash is destroyed. You're exiled. Jews are praying to return home. There is uh, economic distractions, a bit of assimilation. Sounds familiar? And then we have an ability to return home. Aliyah of choice. Sounds familiar? As Ezra Nechemia calls out and says, follow us. And very few people came. And we, as students of Tanakh, look at the Pesukim and say, what is wrong with them? And then today. So I share a little bit of the pride of being also a catalyst and both of us, and just being in the right place in the right time. And also, I'm sure I, I feel or share some of the pain and frustrations as well. But we need to really go to some fun stuff.
3: Tony? Oh, boy. I'm definitely no Moshe, but he's definitely a Yeshua. My name only. Can't oh, deny okay. that. that. That's <laughs> what you really have to think about, you know?
0: And if I remember correctly, it was Joshua who brought the Jews into the Promised Land. You've probably heard that one before, Rabbi. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, what do you mean by fun? What could be behind the scenes? What could be part of the, the background of the organization that we would call co- I would fun like on? to
2: reminisce with Tony because we rarely do this because usually we're, we're so rushed for time. Can I ask some questions? I for sure.
0: Ask away. Hi, Tony.
2: This is completely on stage. <laughs> uh, we've had some crazy, wacky times over the last 15 years. I'll share two of them if you share two of them. You first. Okay, I'll get you started. This is, no one knows the story, but years... You don't know the story. Years back, uh, we had a partnership with JNF UK, and for a few years, they had a car rally a car rally that they would take their most wealthy philanthropists in their fanciest cars and for three weeks they would travel from London to Israel. Certain points they obviously had to move their unbelievable cars, expensive cars on on boats and, and they would be lavish meals and incredible experiences. And we got a call, this is like 10 years ago, right? We get a call saying, you know what, we want tochem, we want some substance to this. It's not just three weeks of just eating and driving these unbelievably gorgeous cars. Could you give us some spiritual or Zionist element to it? Could you give us an ole to come with us, and we're going to escort him for those three weeks and celebrate his aliyah. At least he'll give us a purpose to this philanthropic men's club. So he said, Sure. So we felt in our approach that we should get a religious ole and a and a secular ole and have the two of them travel together so that all aspects of the community would feel connected to this experience. So we found them two willing participants to travel for three weeks and and we thought they would be responsive and say, That's great. And they said, Okay, now get us a car for them. I'm like, what? Well, they need a car. So we wanted to have some token and some substance and meaning in getting the car, and we found a 1948 Rolls Royce. Little do we know, I mean, we had to fix it up, and it was a complete jalopy. Little do we know that it was going to rain for two out of those three weeks, and one of them would have to crank the windshield wipes, wipers, and there was no air conditioning, there was no heat, there was no nothing. The seats were all ripped up, and there was, like, things hurting the guy. Um, coil. And uh, it was awesome. So they traveled for three weeks and, and they would send us emails and we were posted and we were you don't know the story, right? And we were tra- and, and they were so enamored by it. And then the Rolls Royce, this whole caravan of cars comes outside the Knesset. Tony and I jump into this 1948 Rolls-Royce. We drive it up to the front of the Knesset. They opened up those those gates, and uh, ministers were there to greet this caravan, and we had it to Dr. Oled. And these two guys got their Aliyah certificates in front of the Knesset coming out of a Rolls Royce from 1948. That night we had a dinner, and we just were asking, remember? Professor Avner, Yehud Avner was sitting with us at the dinner, a late ambassador, and, uh, and we were asking the participants, what did it do for you? Like, it transformed our trip. It just transformed our trip. Like we were, before in previous years, okay, we were showing off our cars, we were just going to Israel. But it gave us, we were escorting to two O'Lim to make Aliyah. And these two guys became really close as well, which was also a beautiful bridging gap kind of experience. That night we stood up at the dinner and it was like, okay, if it was really so inspirational, we're gonna auction off the car. <laughs> we made all of our money back. We sold our we we owned that car for three weeks. But that was a great that was a great wacky story that no one knows. A second story that no one knows is that uh, a bunch of years ago, 10, 11 years ago, when, when Sderot was under major attack and missiles were coming into Sderot, and we were watching on television just a mass exodus of cars coming out of Sderot, of people being hosted in Beit Shemesh, Renana, Khashbanaim. People were leaving, mass exodus. So our VP at that time, we're watching around the town tel- and he said, enough, this is ridiculous. He grabs his laptop and he leaves the office. We had no idea where he was going. Two hours later, he calls us and said, okay, we signed a two-year contract with, an, with a Stayro building, we're moving Nefesh to Stayro. I'm like, what? He said, we're gonna do a rotation. Every day, we're gonna send some of our staff to Stayro and be part of Ami Israel. So for, we owned <laughs> an, an office for two years in and, uh and we became so close to everyone in the community, because they couldn't believe it, everyone was leaving, and we and we opened an office. We moved we, we moved uh, tables there and pictures of Aliyah, and we became friendly with every single Moroccan and wrote. To this day, we still get invitations to the Mamunas, and uh, and that's no one knows that story. That was crazy, and even many of our staff on the way towards our Torah Nut, our rotation of taking of moving our laptops to the state road office many a time during those weeks, we had to hit the ground and hide them, put, put our bodies next to the car on the floor on our way to our office in stay Road. Amazing.
0: Tony, can you top those?
2: Absolutely, You can.
3: <laughs> There's a lot of stories that people don't know. Um, I don't know if they're fun or stories or just emotional stories or just stories, but um, one of the stories that really gets to me, which people don't know this at all, um, during you know the different um, uh, we'll call wars that took place during the last 15 years, and you'd have uh, lone soldiers or kids from America or wherever going into Gaza or wherever they were going And they're not allowed to take their cell phones with them. And so, and they go in, you know, it's kind of strange to say this, but they'll go in for a day and come out for an hour. And when you call your parents at 3 o'clock in the morning, because it's a different time zone in Israel, that would be a horrific call to receive if they know you're in the army. So what they would do is they would call us, Tell us we're okay. We'd wait for a decent hour, then call their parents say they were okay. So that's the kind of things that we do that people don't know, which is really, really important and meaningful.
0: That's yeah. great. Each
2: staff each staff took around twenty parents' numbers. They were on call. It was um, it was a few
3: very emotional nights for us. So there's a lot of emotions because you feel f- you know. You feel really attached, I mean there are several of and one in particular a uh, young guy that I know, and he was injured, and he came out, and his parents called me on the phone. Could you go you know find my son and he was in the hospital so those are kind of emotional connections, and thank God he's okay, and you pass that on to a a parent who is like so gracious and and, and, and beautiful and and I have to tell you there's other things like that I mean I really 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 wanted to go up north when it was the wrong 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 time to go and everybody except if you're a military going that far so I just called a dear friend of mine and said I don't have a car but can I take your car and he goes no I'll, I'll drive you I said you're not afraid because this is you know they're dropping in Haifa they're going he goes no 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 I, I'm I'm fine as long as you're doing a mitzvah, and Hashem is going to protect me and you. So that's the kind of things that you do that you don't realize that has an impact on a, on a personal uh, relationship. But there's a lot of fun stuff that happened, too. I mean, just incredibly fun things and, and things that uh, are emotional on the other side. You know, two people meet on a plane. Look, I have to tell you something. I, st- I got stopped. I was in Jerusalem. I, 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 it was Shabbos. I, I, after Shabbos, of Shabbos, I, I got out of the car, and somebody ran up to me, and he goes, Mr. Galbart, Mr. Galbart, I just want to tell you. I looked at him. I didn't know who he was. I got s- scared for a minute, but he said, I just want to tell you, I made it. My dream came through. He says, I made it into this special unit. I said, that's a wonderful dream. He goes, no, that's not half the story. I met my wife, you know, as assistant in that unit, and my dream was to get married and and find someone in Israel. And because you helped me get here, you know, I found my wife. To me, those are great stories. So there's individual stories and there's big macro stories.
0: You mentioned about the war and different things that your organization and staff have done. Um, The world, and I would say the Jewish world and the secular world, were convinced that the organization would suffer during wartime that people who had applied for Aliyah would postpone, that people who were thinking of Aliyah would never reconsider. Your attitude was, I predict not one person will drop out, and of course you were right. Why were you so confident?
2: I don't like that, of course you were right.
0: Um, well, I mean, in retrospect, yeah. we know from based on the uh, proof that you were right.
2: Because when a person commits to, to moving their family for life, to Israel with the expected ups and downs. And they viscerally connect to this notion of coming home. That do- things don't deter people from coming home. If you need to go visit a parent, and you've committed to visit that parent, and that parent's expecting you to come, you're going to come there. You're going to get home. And I never felt that there would be a cancellation. This is people who've been dreaming about this for years and worked out the logistics and details and committed to a time to... Why would they even cancel? We've had to work on ways, nuanced ways, of making sure that their absorption would be able to be finessed a bit more for them, understanding the the cultural and societal tensions during a war. But I never expected people to cancel, and thank God
3: I was, you know...
0: you were just as confident
3: you know I was confident because I knew the people who wanted to go to Israel weren't going because of a a negative thing they were going for a positive reason you know and that's what I knew was important and the positive would outweigh the negative light years I mean 15 years ago Bersheba was nice but it's a lot nicer today 15 years ago you know you know Tel Aviv things have changed for the better I mean, it's really modern, it's really moving, it's the startup nation, it's for everybody and for anything. So if you're a kid out of school and you want to join the army, you'll have that experience. But if you're a a guy just finished graduating and you're a neurosurgeon, you know, you'll find a place in Israel for you. So that's the positive thing and it's it's amazing. So all this negative stuff, we don't dwell on the negative we, we look for the positive. Just like we look for all the good things we agree upon, we look for the positives. And there's a place for everybody who wants to go to Israel. I guarantee you, you'll find your place there.
0: Well, you certainly seem to have found the formula that works. Um, before we wrap things up, we have a unique opportunity. You're here at the, at the place, at the synagogue where it all began 15 years ago. Uh, still one of the great hubs of American Jewry here, BRS. Uh, plus, we have people watching from Jewish communities all over North America and beyond. I give you both the opportunity to give us a special message. What would you say 15 years later to uh, those American Jews who are thinking about it, considering it, wondering about their own Zionism and commitment to Israel? What would your message be tonight? Yesterday
2: we had a, a mega event in New York City. It was the largest... Aliyah event overseas in North America in the history of the state of Israel From 930 to 4 we had 1500 people and then another four or five hundred people that came in the evening so 2,000 people representing families and Like-minded individuals who want to move to Israel. I say this because the, the title of the day and it was branded that way was imagine greater possibilities and I, I think it touches upon the positivity that, that Tony was talking about, imagine greater possibilities means that you're not satisfied with the status quo. You're not satisfied with the status quo of communal connectivity to Israel. You're not satisfied with the status quo with your personal religious inspirational development. And you just look in the mirror and say, could I do more? Could I be more? Could I connect more? Not satisfied with the status quo of what's happening in Israel and what we can do. Not satisfied with the status quo of, of modern day Zionism and the Aliyah movement. Imagine greater possibilities means charge yourself. Dig deep inside you, find that nitsutz, so find that spark, and just let it shine. <laughs> And uh, my message to anyone who's listening, uh, I'm preaching to the choir here because uh, I know BRS, but uh, marvel in the majesty of the miracle, like the M's, marvel in the majesty of the miracles of our time. We are the luckiest generation ever. It's Just pause for a moment. Ramam says, Like when you touch a mezuzah, just pause. Just pause. We need to pause as a nation and just look at the bounty of blessing and miracles that surround us. It's overwhelming. I think it's so overwhelming that we can't even conceptualize it. And if you just open your heart for a second... And just let that appreciation inside. It will transform us. It will transform us as a people. It will transform us as, as, as a nation. It will transform us personally. Dayenu just, just for having hakaratatov of appreciation just to what God is giving our generation. And not just be the 90-year-old Auschwitz survivor coming off the plane who can understand the greatness of this miracle, but also educate that nine-year-old who can get off that plane and understand how miraculous it is to make Aliyah today.
0: Tony? Mm -hmm.
3: I always hate having to go after Rabbi Fass (laughs) makes such a (laughs) great... We always do it that way. Yeah, it's always that way. So I... You know, uh, I reflect on it a little bit differently, uh, perhaps. I always think about what one person can do. You know, uh, it's not easy being alone. It's not easy being unique. But if you look at it, one person and one nation, it's the one that is the strength. And and that's the way I look at it. You know, if if you're... If you're just talking about Nefesh B'Nefesh and you're just talking about Aliyah, that's great. If you want to make Israel your home, we know how to help you do that. And that one person, whoever that may be, you might feel alone, but you can accomplish so much. You can look at the individuals in Israel and one individual can accomplish so much. It's like uh, you're you're... you're you're a small fish in a small pond. You're not a small fish in a big pond. And, and I think that the lesson that I learned is I've seen people make Aliyah in the last 15 years who have done such incredibly great things. Some will never be known to anyone because that's who they are and what they've done, and others will. But if you aspire to become a prime minister a defense minister, a finance minister, a minister of immigration absorption, a Knesset member, or a teacher, or whatever you come to your aspirations, you can do it in Israel. And the thing that you're going to do there is going to make a big difference in your life, but the people that you touch. Um, so the message is basically: do what your heart tells you. You know, go for it. If 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 it if it's a struggle, it's a struggle, but. When you look back, things aren't as difficult as when you look forward.
0: I want to thank those who have been listening and watching uh, around the world on NSN tonight for this historic occasion. I want to thank everybody here at uh, BRS, of course. I remind you that tonight's dessert reception is in celebration of a, a big 15th anniversary Mazel Tov to the Nefesh Benefish organization. I th- ask all of you to join me in wishing Mazel Tov and thanking both Rabbi Fass and Tony Gelbart. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a very special edition of JM Rewind, the Nefesh B'Nefesh homecoming, celebrating 15 years of Nefesh B'Nefesh, where it all began at Boca Raton Synagogue. That was my conversation with Tony Gelbart and Rabbi Josh Fass, the co-founders of Nefesh B'Nefesh. I thank you for listening in and being part of our experience with JM Rewind right here at the Nahum Siegel Network.